2 Timothy chapter 4 in your Bibles tonight. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. And we're going to be looking tonight at verses 6 through 9. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. And I want to begin reading there in verse number 6. And we'll read down through verse number 9. We are coming to the end of the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, we have been looking at, of course, the, the, the grand teaching of 2 Timothy about the power of the Scriptures and how all the Scripture is given by inspiration of the Lord and by the inspiration of God. And chapter 4 is really Paul's final words in many ways to young Timothy. Uh, it's nearly impossible for us to know exactly how old Timothy was at the time, but uh, when we talk about young men scripturally, we're not necessarily talking about uh, teenage men or even uh, young. They, he could have been as, as old as 30 or a little bit older than 30. Uh, but nevertheless, the Apostle Paul uh, was giving Timothy instructions for the work. He was giving Timothy the things that he would need to do. And much of what Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, if you read the book of 1 Timothy, we preached through that book a couple of years ago, I think. It's been now. Uh, it was more uh, church-oriented. It was more based upon the order of the church. This letter's been much more personal. Uh, 2 Timothy is, we see, we see a side of Paul. Uh, we see his heart. Uh, we see his compassion. Uh, he didn't just look at Timothy as another ministry uh, comrade, he considered him his, his friend. He considered him someone that he wanted to impart his life to. But Paul was getting ready to depart. Paul was getting ready to not just leave town. The apostle Paul was getting ready to give his very life for the cause of Christ. And these verses that we're going to read tonight are probably the most familiar uh, of this particular chapter. In verse number 6, Paul writes these words. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only." but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Let me just draw your attention back to verse 7 for just a moment. And if you mark in your Bibles, mark the expression, a good fight, and then mark the phrase, the faith. A good fight, the faith. I want to preach tonight, I gave this a, a, a title tonight, just simply entitled, A Good Fight of Faith. A Good Fight of Faith. Notice how Paul's talking about his impending death. He's talking about his life, his ministry, all that he's been doing since he was converted on the road, on the Damascus Road. It is now coming to a climactic end. The Apostle Paul, to many of us, we consider him a, a scriptural hero. The Apostle Paul didn't think of himself that way. He didn't think of himself as someone who was to be looked up to. I don't think the Apostle Paul ever had in his mind's eye that someday uh, we would be reading about the Apostle Paul in the way that we do and looking up to him as one of the great defenders of the faith. By the way, I think that's a great lesson for us to learn tonight, that what we do for the cause of Christ is not so that we can have 
notoriety in somebody else's eyes. It is simply that we would be known for the fight of faith that we waged. And by the way, it is a fight. But do you know you can fight for the faith and not do it in a good way? You can fight for the faith and not do it God's way. Uh, we can do a lot of our schemes, a lot of our planning. We can think of a lot of different ways of how we're going to fight for the cause of Christ. But the Apostle Paul gives us the pattern of a good fight of faith. When we're talking about fighting a good fight, we're talking about doing it God's way. For the believer, even though Paul's coming to the end of his life, death is not a frightful thing the same way it is to a non-believer. Why? Because we have the hope and the promises that come along with that faith. The reason that the believer doesn't fear death like an unbeliever is because we have hope. We have the promises of God. We have the things that God's Word has told us are in store for us. The Apostle Paul knew something. He knew that this life was not the end. He knew that this is not all there is. Many times we put all of our effort, all of our time into making this life the best that we can make it. But the reality is God's given us this life to fight for the faith. He's given us this life in order that we might proclaim and preach the truth in which you and I have been redeemed and saved for. But Paul knew death was coming. As a matter of fact, Paul's known all along that his, the likelihood that he would die a martyr, he's known even all the way back in the book of Acts, he made references to not knowing the things that would befall him. But I think Paul had a sense that one day he was going to most likely die by the sword of a government, most likely Rome. He would die a martyr's death for this faith. Today, we don't often understand what it is to fight for the faith because the faith seems so easy. The faith seems like it's just been handed to us and we just kind of have to get through every day. And we might say we fought a good fight, but the Apostle Paul was in a real fight. He was in a fight to make sure that this faith that was once delivered is a faith that continued long after Paul was gone. Timothy is having imparted to him what Paul knew about God. Folks, the odds are tonight and in the next few days, the next few years, or even in your lifetime, your departure will not be like Paul's. The odds are you are not going to lose your life for the cause of Christ, but you and I are to fight the good fight of faith and fight with everything we have to preserve and protect that which is sound and that which is proper and that which is correct. Paul gives us a pattern for the believer. You notice what he says here in verse 6, and Paul uses such powerful words. Folks, uh, this is not uh, uh, patented by me, but learn the Bible language. Learn what the Bible, how the Bible phrases things. Uh, we live in a, uh, this is kind of a side note, but we have so many Christian cliches that we think Christian cliches are actually Scripture. Many times they're not. A lot of times we say something that sounds Christian, but notice what Paul says. He says, for I am now ready to be offered. Now, there's so much power in what Paul is saying here. Paul is basically saying, I am ready to be sacrificed. 
Now think about what he's saying here. He's saying, I am ready to give up my life for this faith. The word offered there is a word that actually means, literally means to be poured out. To take it one step further, biblically, to be poured out is a reference to the drink offerings. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament and all the way back to even the blood that was poured out at the bottom of the altar where the mercy seat was. This is, this is symbolism in its grandest form. But it's also very expressive of being martyred. In other words, we would not be doing a disservice to the Scripture to say that Paul was saying, I am now ready to be martyred for the faith. That's, that's in essence what Paul was saying. I am ready for my life to be poured out. I'm ready for my own blood to be poured out as a sacrifice. Now, let's make something very clear. Paul is not saying that the sacrifice of himself was to atone for sin. He's not saying that the sacrifice of himself was to, sac was to sacrifice himself for the sin of someone else, or was it to offer anything to the atoning sacrifice of what Christ had already done? Folks, Jesus Christ's sacrifice is the only atonement that will ever be sufficient. Paul is not saying he's some kind of a Messiah. He's not referring that my shedding of blood is adding anything at all to the atonement of Christ. But what Paul is saying and what Paul is offering here is he's literally saying for the cause of Christ, for this faith that I have fought for, for the confirmation of the truth of the gospel, for all of the saints, the believers who stand on this faith, I am willing to be poured out. That's how vital that this faith is. Oftentimes, if you study your Bible, you go back into the Old Testament, especially look at the covenants that God has made. Oftentimes, covenants were confirmed by drink offerings. These offerings were a way of finding acceptance with God. Paul says, I am now ready to be offered. I am ready to put, be put to death as an offering. And he says in verse the second half of that verse, he says, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, when we look at the word departure, we think about uh, leaving one location and going to another. And in a sense, that's what Paul's talking about here. But his departure is an earthly departure, and it easily is a picture or a representation of death. But here's what it supposes. A departure indicates not only a leaving of one place, but an arrival at another. In other words, Paul wasn't saying, I'm just going to die off the scene and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be non-existent. Paul understood something about this faith. He understood that this faith was not ending here. And folks, how we need to remember that tonight, that the faith that you're living for, the faith that you're living tonight does not end here. This is not all that there is. There is something so much grander beyond this life. This departure, he says, my departure is at hand, the time of my departure. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. This isn't just general terms he's using here. Death is not the end of any person. Everyone will live eternally somewhere. 
It will either be an eternity with Christ or to be an eternity separated from Christ in a place called hell. There is no ending of a man or a woman. We will live forever somewhere. The body, of course, dies, but the soul never dies. At death, the body returns the dust. But where does the soul go? The soul goes back to its creator. The soul goes back to God. He who gave you life. It goes back to who gave you that life. So what is death really? Death is a dissolving of the body and the soul together. The unity is gone temporarily. But that departure that he's talking about is he's talking about leaving this earthly life and going someplace else. Now notice he mentions this and the time of my departure. Very personal here, the time. Folks, this is a promise tonight. You will not continue here forever. I don't know the hour. I don't know the day. I don't even know an approximate year. But you will not continue here forever, ever, ever. None of us will. Not in our current state. That day is already fixed. That day is already settled. God knows the beginning and he knows the end. He has already set the boundaries of man's life. Those boundaries are set. Some people that kind of concerns them, but I would rather God determine my days than anyone else determine them. How many days we have to fight this fight of faith is entirely up to God. How many hours, days, weeks, months, even if the government says that the average lifespan is 72, 73, it's all determined by God, whatever that age is. Paul knew that at his stage of life, he knew from his age, he knew from his situation, he knew that now he's in bonds at Rome, or he may have even known by a divine revelation his time was coming, his time of being removed out of this earth and being taken to be where Christ is was very near. Now, people often get very depressed about death passages in the Bible, and I understand that. But why is Paul spending time telling Timothy about his impending death to stir up the diligence in Timothy. Timothy, my day is at hand. Your day is coming soon and coming at some point as well. Folks, it isn't meant to depress us. It's meant to instir us and say, listen, Paul's day came. Now, when Paul wrote these words, it hadn't come yet. But guess what? It did come. He departed, and he was gone. And it's meant to stir up not just Timothy, but to stir you and I up as well. Paul mentions these things as he's, he's handing over a large task to Timothy. Paul's all but telling Timothy, Timothy, I don't have long. That's why in just a moment when we saw verse number 9, he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. This wasn't a social call. He was telling Timothy, you need to get here quick because my day, my time of departure is coming very quickly and there's some things I need to tell you. 
There's some other things I need to talk to you about. Paul's giving Timothy an example of how we ought to live our lives understanding a time of departure no matter how soon or how far off it might be. Notice Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I've often thought about that phrase. And I've asked myself the question, could I say the same thing? Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but don't make, don't make the mistake of believing that these men did not write with their own personalities, with their own thoughts and their own emotions. God used those things to pen these words. So Paul's writing this, I have fought a good fight. Think about what Paul must have been thinking about. He hadn't been in the fight his whole life. He spent many of his years as a Pharisee. He spent many of his life a lot of his life as a non-believer, a religious expert, but a non-believer. But yet Paul says, I have fought a good fight. The fight of faith is a fight for the faith of Christ. Most of the world in Paul's day would have declared to him, what you're doing is foolish. What you're doing, it's insanity. Most of the world would not have applauded the Apostle Paul. They would have said, what is that man doing? Why has he wasted his life proclaiming this Messiah? Why is he proclaiming faith? Folks, talk to many non-believers and they will think that preachers of the gospel are the most foolish people on the planet. It doesn't make any sense to them. Why would a person give their life to preach this Christ? Folks, no matter what the opinion of the world was, Paul was able to pen with his own handwriting, I have fought a good fight. What did Paul fight for? He fought for the truth. But most importantly, or as important rather, he fought for the glory of Christ to be seen. Paul didn't want him, he did not want to be glorified. If somebody today would hold the Apostle Paul up as a hero, he would be mortified by that thought. That you were holding him in such a high regard that you would say, now this is my hero, but he would want, I believe this, he would want it to be said about him, he did fight a good fight. And folks, I think when we get to the end of our life, as a child of God, that's what it ought to be said about all of us. I fought a good fight. I wasn't perfect. Folks, Lord knows tonight, there's not a one of us here that's perfect. There is not a one of us who can sit here and say that my fight of faith has been perfect from day one. No, we, we would say this, it's been filled with potholes and stumbling blocks. But you know what? In the time that you have, the appointed hours, fight a good fight. Fight for what God has given to you. Paul says, I have finished my course. It's interesting. Look, he says, I'm not ready to be offered. I have fought a good fight and I have finished my course. What is he talking about here? What is this course? When we look at the word course, we think about a race. We think about a, a, a place where a race takes place. Paul has in reference here, no, uh, he's not necessarily talking about an athletic event here, although there are portions of 1 Corinthians where I believe he's, he's using athletic events and comparing them to life and even to eternal things. But I believe here he's, he has the race of life. 
He has the course that God had given him. One of the hardest things, one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life is to let God determine your course from beginning to end. My course often doesn't look like God's course. My course often goes where I want it to go. And here's what it does. It always avoids trouble. If I'm riding my own course, I'm not riding through anything that's troublesome. I'm not riding through anything that's hurtful. I only want the good things. My course has a perfectly smooth road. It never turns. It never veers. It has no trouble. It just gets there and it's smooth and there's no problems. Here's the problem. The course of faith, the course that a believer is on, is going to be filled with obstacles and trouble and trials. And folks, that's often the way you know you're on the right course. If you're not being opposed and you're not having any obstacles in your life, I'm going to question whether or not you're on God's course. Because if you're on God's course, you are going to have trouble. I mean, Christ himself said, the world's going to hate you. That seems like trouble to me. Why do they hate me for? Because of him. Why was Paul martyred? Because he was a bad man? No, he was martyred because of his faith in Christ. That's the reason Paul was martyred for the faith. Paul had a desire, other places in Scripture, I don't have the references tonight, but I was thinking about these things today. Paul desired, I know, to finish his course with joy. The word joy biblically is not the same word that we think about. When we think about joy, we always compare it to always smiling, always happy. Joy biblically is not exactly the same word. Joy is something that's God-given. It's the easy way I can describe this. God-given joy is different than earthly joy. It's something that you find your satisfaction in God alone. You find your satisfaction in Christ alone. And it's a joy that you have even when life is not going like you thought it would. That's why some of the most joyful people you'll ever meet are people who have not had an easy road. But they have hope and faith in Christ. Paul wanted to finish this course with joy. He's reached the end of his life. He's, he's at Rome. He's going to be a martyr for Christ. And he's concluding, my earthly work is done. My fight is over. My race is over. The days and the years of the life of the ministry that God's given to me, they are coming to an end. Now, here's where all this ties together. He says, I'm ready to be offered. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And here it is. I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Now, he doesn't mean I kept myself saved. He doesn't mean I kept myself by my own grace. He knows who he's kept by. He knows that it's Christ that keeps him in the faith. It is Christ whose hand he cannot be plucked out of. He knows that Christ is the author and the finisher of his faith. He knows it's Christ and his grace and his interceding on behalf of Paul. But Paul's talking about his own personal profession of faith. I have kept my own profession of faith. What's hard to find about the life of Paul in the scriptures 
It is hard to find a place in Paul's life after he was saved where he wavered in what he believed. Now, I know we don't have every moment and every second of Paul's life. But in the scriptures, it's hard to find times when he absolutely wavered in his faith. He was steadfast. That's what it is. I kept the faith. But he's also gone one step further. And I think this is more important than anything. He has kept the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the gospel pure and kept it from corruption. I've kept it from being corrupted by those who would change it. That's why Paul, when he wrote in Galatians about that there is no other gospel, and if someone comes to you preaching another gospel than what we've preached to you, I'm paraphrasing, count them accursed. And he said, even if I preach something different to you, count me accursed. That's more what Paul had in mind about keeping the faith, keeping the purity of the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the gospel. Paul could say personally, I kept the gospel pure and without corruption even when I was opposed. I was faithful even when others hated me. I kept my integrity in the work that I had to do. I have kept the faith. I've been faithful to the trust. I've been a good steward. And I haven't kept, he said in Acts 20, I have kept nothing back that was profitable. You know, some of the most profitable things that you'll ever have in the Christian life are sometimes not the most obvious. Sometimes we're being profited and we don't even know it. Sometimes we think God's not hearing me, but God is actually, as that song says, God's actually molding you in his way. He's using unlikely things in our life to mold us and make us into what he wants us to be. It isn't always the obvious things. Some of the greatest conforming to Christ, some of the greatest sanctification doesn't even take place while we're sitting here listening to the preaching of the word and we're singing these great hymns. Some of this is taking place outside in your everyday life. Wow, I didn't realize God is sanctifying me that day. I didn't realize God was helping me and conforming me. That's what he's doing. He's doing these things. Every aspect of your life, Christ is conforming you into his image. It's not just at church time. Your life of faith is your life in the hands of Christ. And Christ molds you. He makes you into what he wants you to be. What does he want us to be? Like him. He's preparing us for our departure. When you start thinking about sanctification that way, and you start thinking about it for the reality of what God is actually doing in my life, he's not just randomly letting acts happen. He's putting all these things in my life as part of my conformity to Christ so that one day when my departure is at hand, I am going to be more like Christ than the day I was converted, than the day I was saved. And I can tell you tonight, as a child of God, that, that process is sometimes very, very painful. Sometimes I'd rather not be there. I'd rather say, God, don't, uh, just let me be. No, we want God's conformity. We want him molding us and making us. 
Paul could say he kept the faith by declaring the whole counsel of God. You know, Paul preached even the unpopular things. Paul was never a people's preacher in the fact that he preached what tickled the ears. Remember we talked last week about itching ears and people not enduring sound doctrine. Paul would never have been an ear tickler. Paul would not have said, well, I don't want to offend anybody. Boy, oh boy, how we need that today. I mean, we are spineless people. People are offended at everything. And I'm not just talking outside the church. I'm talking even people who sit inside churches. They're offended at everything. The whole counsel of God, I'm going to tell you, if you preach the whole counsel of God, you're going to be offended. You're going to have your toes stepped on, as they used to say. You're going to be bothered. You might even leave church angry every once in a while. It happens. But you know what? It's all profitable. There's nothing in this book that's without profit. The whole counsel of God is profitable. He said, I've kept the faith. And then notice Paul says in verse 8, he says, I have henceforth... Or as a result, we might say, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now, Paul has just given us, he's compared his life to a fight. He's compared his life to a race. He's rejoicing that this saving faith that saved him is still active in his life. And he remained faithful by God's grace. He's still doing what God's called him to do. But he says, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Paul's departure is at hand. What, what's ahead for him? He tells us right here. What's next for me, Timothy, is a crown of righteousness. Now, this crown of righteousness is meant to be a comfort and an encouragement to Timothy and others. Folks, here's where our happiness is tonight. Our happiness is in our future. Now, we ought to be joyful in the Lord tonight. We ought to rejoice in God. You ought to praise God at every moment of every day. His word of praise ought to be on your lips. But I'm telling you something. There is a future coming. There is an eternity coming. There is something that is coming so that's ahead of you now that I cannot even describe to you in words what that really is. This, this crown of righteousness... Paul is signifying the entire eternity or the eternal life, the reward of God is wrapped up in this phrase. This is really what is at the heart here. Paul says, what lays ahead for me is the reward of God. A reward of God. This crown is given by God. Notice it says, Henceforth laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. This crown speaks of the glory. It speaks of the excellency of Christ. Ephesians talks about believers already being raised up to sit with Christ. There is a throne of glory. There is a kingdom that's been prepared. And it's called this crown of righteousness because it comes through the righteousness of Christ. It's a crown of righteousness, not because I earned it. It's a crown of righteousness that's a result of the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to me in spite of me. 
this righteous crown, it's a right that's given. It is access that's given. Folks, unless God gives it to us, there is no crown to enjoy. Paul was not claiming this crown by saying, I was the super Christian. He's not saying, I'm doing this because I'm better than all. He said, I am rejoicing in the reality that this crown of righteousness which Christ has given me, he believed the promises of God and he says there's a day coming that the next thing on my calendar after I depart this world is there is a reward of God. And if you think that didn't motivate him throughout his entire life, People often have made a terrible mistake when they say, don't be motivated by the rewards of God. There is a reward waiting, and it helps us live this life now knowing that no matter what I'm dealing with, no matter what I'm struggling with, there is a reward of God that waits the believer. And it's right there, and it might be tomorrow. Or it may still be years and years down the road. When you talk about a fight of faith, you don't know if you're fighting for a day or you're fighting for the next 20, 30 years. But we're have, we are to be in a good fight of faith. This crown was obtained in a righteous way. It was obtained by Christ. Christ obtained this crown of righteousness. You know, some earthly crowns are taken by force. You know, there are some crowns we think of kingdoms and rulers. Some people get into power because they take somebody over by force. You're not going to get this crown of righteousness because you overtook God. You're getting this crown of righteousness because he overtook you. And that's quite a difference. How did Paul get saved? Did he get, did he get saved when he was seeking after God? No, the God, Lord Jesus, overtook him. That's what happens when we're saved. This is, this is Christ overtaking us. This crown of righteousness, we think about this. Well, I get this, this everlasting promise. You know what this crown is? This crown is God the Father's free gift. It's God the Father's free gift unto his children through his merciful grace that has been demonstrated through Christ. But you also realize that it's a legal title. It is a legal title of the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ, even right now as children of God. Now look what Paul says. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me. For me. He's not just saying this as I, Paul, am the only one. Sorry for the rest of you. Crown of righteousness is for me. The rest of you get nothing. This is personal. He's reminding Timothy as a believer that this for me is for all of those who have been chosen in Christ, those who've been redeemed by his blood, those that have been sanctified by his spirit. Paul's saying that this crown is given by God not only to me, but every believer in Christ. He says that there's a day Notice he says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, he's the only one that can judge that which is right, shall give me at, this, at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The righteous judge. 
The righteous judge, of course, is Christ alone. He is the one that will be upon the throne. He is the one that the Father has given all things over to. Christ judges the quick. Christ judges the dead. Christ is the only one qualified to make the judgment. He's a righteous and a perfect judge. There will be no mistaken evidence with Christ. There will be no, I overlook something. He is the perfect and righteous judge. Christ is righteous as God. He is righteous as man. He is known as our mediator. His offices of king, his offices of priest, he will also be the judge. And notice Paul says that there is an appointed day. He said, he shall give me at that day. Now, I got studying this phrase, and there were some commentators that said he was talking about that that would be immediately at his death, or it would be later at hand at the day of the resurrection or the last judgment. I think we can look at this and look at the principle of what he's talking about. He's saying there is a day when this crown of righteousness will be that has been laid up for me. That day is coming. Paul is using this as a comfort. He's using this as an encouragement. He's telling us tonight, listen, what I'm looking forward to in Christ is not just for me. Look what he says here. How he qualifies this. He says, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. All them that love the appearing of Christ, he said this crown of righteousness is laid up for them as well. What does it mean to love his appearing? We're looking for his appearing again. We're looking for his second coming. People often ask you, what's your, where, do you where do you think about the last days, the end times? Here's what we're to be doing. We're to be looking for his return. I'm fully convinced there's a whole lot of things about eschatology end times that we're going to find out we had a lot of things messed up. But I do know this, that even in the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the people that were there said the same Jesus that you've seen ascend into heaven will come in like manner or the same fashion in which he came. So what are we supposed to be looking for? We're looking for his return. Every child of God doesn't just look and say, boy, I'm looking, but I don't like what I'm looking for. No, you love his appearing. In other words, this is not a negative to you. This is, I can't wait for his appearing. I long for his appearing. I long for his return. Christ's appearing at his second coming, it should be loved by his own. Every believer looks for it. Not because of the event itself. And by the way, there'll be some gloriousness to it. But understand even further than that, not only the beauty and the glory of the return itself, but what it means even for the believer. You know, people often say that the longer we live and the longer we go, the more we look to heaven, the more heaven seems sweeter, heaven seems more, uh, it's more precious than it used to be. It grows that way. Every day we get closer and closer to his appearing or every day we get closer to our departure and Christ ought to grow more and more sweet to you. 
He ought to be more precious to you. He ought, he ought to be something that is, it, it's, I'm looking forward to this. Christ, our salvation, our joy. The Bible talks about believers appearing with him in glory. First John talks about us being like him. We'll be able to behold him for all of eternity, to see him. This Christ that you have followed, this Christ that you have only known by faith, will now become sight. You will actually see what you only had by faith. We'll appear with him in glory. We'll enjoy the everlasting vision of him. But here's the difference. You know even the devil, Satan himself and all of his demons, believe in Jesus Christ's second coming. But they don't love it. He hates it. See, folks, don't ever let the devil convince you that he's winning. The devil has already been defeated. You know when the devil was defeated? He was defeated on the cross. He was defeated when Jesus Christ said, it is finished. Now we give Satan a lot of, we give him a lot of rope. We give him a lot of things in our life and we say Satan's just too strong. Listen, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan never has victory over Christ. Satan has never won a single battle over Christ. He is already victorious. So when we talk about loving his appearing, Satan doesn't want to hear about the second coming. He doesn't love the appearing. Instead of loving it, they're going to tremble at his appearing. The wicked, those who refuse to acknowledge and trust Christ, those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel, they are going to see the Lord and not love him and rejoice in him. They are going to see him in fear. But here's what believers know. Believers know, we believe, and we love not only Christ, but we also love his appearing. We love the fact that he is coming again. And one day, that crown of righteousness has been laid up for us. That crown of righteousness, we are going to be able to know it firsthand. Paul, we're going to stop with this verse tonight because I wanted to set this up for next week where we're going to go with the remainder of this chapter. Paul, with urgency, says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Timothy, at this time, was in Ephesus. And he's asking Timothy, come to Rome. That's where Paul is now. This is not just, like I said, it's not a social call. This is not just Paul saying, Paul, Paul telling Timothy, look, I, really, I want to see you in some kind of an emotional thing. But he's telling him, you need to get here because there are some things that I need to further tell you about. He'll even talk to him in the end of this chapter about getting here before a certain time, getting here before winter. Make sure you bring the books. Things that the Apostle Paul now wants to instill in Timothy before his departure actually comes. Folks, we're going to see, and as we've seen up to this time, that Paul's death being at hand the last part of chapter 4 is really, it's very telling. Because Paul gives a list of everybody who forsook him. 
It makes him make the statement in verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. His friends in ministry deserted him. We're going to hear about people named like Demas who loved the world and left him. He's going to talk about those who were no longer profitable and that how if the Lord had not stood with him, he would faint, literally. But yet, Paul says, I have fought a good fight. Folks, this reward that the Lord has set in store for all of us that love him, I don't think we have a full grasp, a full understanding of what it is. But I want you tonight to think about the future of what the Lord's going to give to his children. Think about what awaits us. One millisecond in his presence. I'm going to make you a promise. Like one millisecond in his presence is going to make the struggles and the trials of this earth seem like nothing. Instantly. Instantly. All of our trials, all of our struggles, all of these hardships, all of these things that every one of you tonight, including myself, are dealing with. One millisecond in his presence is going to erase all of that. I don't know about you, but that's something to be excited about. You know, when you think, you think it, it's always going to be this way and you say, no, it's not. There's a reward of God that's waiting for those who love him and love his appearing. You know, Christ never said that this life would be easy. It was a fight. That's why Paul refers to it, fight a good fight of faith. I've never really been in a friendly fight. It's not called a fight at that point. As a matter of fact, people pay big bucks to watch fights on television. The last thing they want is a friendly fight. So why do we think that Paul's talking about that as we live our Christian lives that this is going to be some kind of friendly little thing? No, he says fight a good fight. In other words, fight with everything you have because you are in a fight. You are in a battle. You are in a struggle. You're not only fighting against the world. You're fighting against the prince and the power of the air, the devil, who is a defeated foe, by the way, but he's still fighting. He's still going about seeking to devour who he will. But one moment, one thought of knowing the heavenly reward that awaits us Folks, this is what grounds us today. This is what makes us be able to stand and say, listen, I'm going to fight another day. I'm going to fight another day. If God gives you breath to get up in the morning, if your eyes open up and you're not in glory, get up and fight. And I'm not trying to be emotionally cute tonight. Get up and fight the good fight of faith. Say, listen, I'm going to fight for this cause because Christ is so good to me. Christ has done so much for me. Look, I may not be the best fighter in this battle, but I want it to be said of me that, look, above all things, that individual fought a good fight. They fought for the right things. They fought for the cause of Christ. Oftentimes, people want to hear that in this life, it's going to get better. I don't ever tell anybody that. I used to. 
I used to tell people it has to get better in this life. No, it doesn't. But when I tell a believer it will get better, (laughs) not in this life, but in the life to come. And remember, eternal life is not a future possession. It's a present possession. You already possess eternal life. You don't die and then get eternal life. If you're saved, you already possess eternal life. You already have it. You're just sojourning. You're just a pilgrim. You're just passing through. Your next step when you leave this life is to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord. May we be able to say with what the Apostle Paul said, I have fought a good fight and I have kept the faith.